Make sure you become Patreon supporters of The Katie Helper Show because this week's Patreon-only episode is an interview I did with Rose McGowan, never before released on video or in audio. It is from last April, but it's still extremely relevant. So again, patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So happy to be here. I'm, of course, your host, Katie Helper. Very excited about our guest, who I will introduce shortly. But uh, I want to just take a moment to, of course, say hi to Leslie Lee. Hey, how's it going? Good, you? Good, good. I'm good. Uh, happy to be here on a Wednesday night, though this is interfering uh, with my housewives' time. So, What's housewives' time? Oh, real, be- real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Well, I want to thank you for your contribution, depriving yourself of that and giving yourself to this. It's a wonderful show. I mean, you learn so much about the human condition from it. Uh, It's quite fascinating. I think I like the New Jersey. I never watched it, but is the New Jersey ones where they have these really ridiculous like Roman columns in front of the house? I think that might be two or three of them, but that does sound like New Jersey. Oh, right. That would make sense. Yeah. And their names are like... Milan, like, was it Melania? Now that I know who Melania Trump is, I feel like maybe when I watched it, I didn't know any other Melanias, so it didn't stick <laughs> out, stand out that much. Obviously not named after Melania Trump, but Melania or something. Oh, you get some interesting names yeah. on the Lesser Housewives show, especially. How, real Beverly Hills, that's like the real deal of the stars. Got real it. rich people, but, you know, a little bit more flavor on the other ones. Where's Nate? Is Nene her name? Is there a Nene? Probably. I only I only really know Beverly Hills. I only really okay, mess it. with I think Beverly she may Hills. be Atlanta, this person I'm thinking of. Anyway, well, we have a great show for you guys today. You know, it's important. We really wanted to make sure. Let's have a moment of silence, by the way. Okay. A moment of silence just passed for Colin Powell, RIP, no longer with us. And Leslie was actually just devastated about, about it. And I was devastated. The only thing that devastated me was seeing Public Enemy doing an RIP Colin Powell tweet. Yeah, what, what? was that? I thought the corniest thing about uh, Public Enemy was when white people started getting really into them in the OOs. But this is a new low for them, actually. A new low. Even worse. Yes. You didn't think it could be, it was possible. I, I mean, cause Colin Powell, I remember this cat from when I was a kid. Cause he was sold to me as, you know, first of all, it was, I didn't even really know he was black because he's so light skinned. He's so light skinned and he is hanging out with the Republicans and no black other black people did. So I like, I didn't even really know he was black. <laughs> if I, when did when it I dawn first on heard you? When I first, like the first few times I heard of him, it didn't even click in my head that he was black. You know, I I knew he was something. I didn't know he was black. But even then, like, so what? Like, he's a black guy who did what? 
You know what I mean? Like, well, we're going to get into that. Uh, I guess we will, but man, just an awful person that people were so enamored with for some reason thought they saw such dignity and courage in him when really he was like a coward, one of the most cowardly people that's ever lived in history. Do you remember when you realized he was black? No, not really. Not really. really. It was been young. Yeah, my cousin's kid, who's now a freshman in college, I remember was really surprised when he learned that Michael Jackson, I mean, this is very different, but he didn't know that Michael Jackson was black. A lot of people pretended like he wasn't uh, in his later days, but yes. Yeah. Much to his consternation. Well, should we just bring in our guests? I'm really excited to bring in our guests. And there's Colin Powell, in case anyone forgot who we were talking about. A lot of people writing Colin Powell, good riddance. But Leslie really wanted to make sure we honored him. And I figured out that a great way to honor him would be by having a guest on who has a different view from the view that we're seeing in the media. You know, people ranging from Public Enemy to Jamal Bowman, even, which was kind of surprising. Squad member Jamal Bowman praising him. And so we have a journalist and filmmaker. He writes for places like The Independent, Guardian, Vice, Foreign Policy, NBC, and more. You can find out more about him at Ahmed Twage, and that is at A-H-M-E-D-T-W-A-I-J. You can also follow him on Twitter at T-W-A-I-J-I. So please welcome journalist Ahmed Twage. Hello, how are you? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. And Ahmed is a very prolific journalist, and you're going to tell us more about your life because you did not start off as a journalist, but uh, you have tons of recent pieces. And we're going to talk firstly, though, about your piece on Colin Powell, which is called, As an Iraqi, I'd sooner mourn my country than treat Colin Powell as a hero. So I guess tell us why you wrote that piece, but also tell us about your own life? Because I think those two things are obviously related. Sure. I assume you want to hear about my life first. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm born and raised in the UK. Um, My parents are originally Iraqi. Um, They left just before the start of the Iran war. So when Saddam took power and they had, like, my dad, I guess, had the foresight to come and move to the UK. Um, I as you know, graduated as a doctor initially, God knows how many years ago now. Um, As an MD, not a PhD, guys. As an MD, yeah, as a hospital doctor. uh, And kind of realized quite quickly on that it wasn't really my passion um, and began shifting towards more like storytelling and journalism. And that's where I am now and that's where you find me um, doing the things that I do. And so tell us about your relationship to Iraq. I guess it's an interesting, like you grow up as almost like a, in like a, in between cultures, like in the UK, you know, your parents obviously are immigrants, so they talk to you about Iraq all the time. And the kind of the image that you get presented as like the child of immigrants is that this is a beautiful country that, you know, the heritage, the culture, all of that is just like this beautiful image that you have. And then at the same time, being British in the UK, you kind of like mixed caught between the two cultures. So the relationship that I developed was, was because you hear all these stories, it was something that I wanted to explore. And unfortunately for me, going to Iraq, um, the, I went a couple of times as a child. 
so I can't really comment on them. But the first time I went as an adult was after the invasion. So I think I went in 2014 was the first time that I went as an adult. As an adult, and just the devastation that you see just kind of didn't reflect the stories that I'd imagined in my head as what Iraq really is. Um, that what we'd been told, and it became almost like this idea that Baghdad was almost like literally just an idea in my head as opposed to a reality because it just didn't reflect what I'd known and what the world had like almost described Baghdad to be. And so obviously the stories of the death, the destruction, and 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 now like sadly Iraq has become synonymous with war and violence. Like even I don't know if you remember the insurrection in uh on January 6th. Um and all the troops that were in the National Guard when they were put onto DC, you found all these journalists that were like, oh my God, this isn't this isn't downtown Baghdad. This is DC. How do we have troops on the floor? And it's like, for me, reading those kind of things really shocked me. And I'm like, no, this isn't this isn't what Iraq is synonymous with. There's, there's a lot more to this culture and idea. So there's kind of like this weird contradiction between what the reality is and what I can kind of understand. And so what did you do when you were in Iraq, when you were there as an adult? Um, so initially I was doing research for a master's degree. Um, so I was looking at the, um, impact of violence on healthcare workers in, in a conflict zone. And then I started working in journalism. I was like writing stories. And so that's kind of, kind of the stuff that I was doing. Um, I worked for a few NGOs as well at the time, but mainly I was doing like the storytelling and I worked on a, some film projects and things. And so tell us what your thoughts are on Colin Powell and what made you write this piece at the Independent. Yeah, so it's an interesting one. I think um, a few things are, are quite important to, to reflect on. And I think number one is like when you read all these obituaries and like you said, how you have public enemy writing these things and then Joe Biden calling him a devout patriot and, and, and George Bush as well, like writing these obituaries and statements. And it's just like this isn't really who the man was. And it's kind of quite common what we do with politicians around the world. Whenever they die, we kind of whitewash the atrocities that they committed as opposed to actually come and like really talk about it. No, this isn't a guy that I should celebrate. He's a guy that sat in front of the UN at the Security Council meeting and flat out lied. Like he said one thing and behind closed doors said another another thing. One of the things he said at, the, at that meeting was he said, I have no doubt in my head, as in I'm paraphrasing, he said, I have no doubt that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. And then in private meetings with his uh, chief of staff, he was asking the question, what if we send half a million troops into Iraq, go from the south to the north, and we don't find weapons of mass destruction? And the reality was, he just showed that, that he had doubt, but he chose to lie in front of in front of the UN Security Council. And this kind of like peddling towards, or warmongering, I would say, towards violence in Iraq and the military industrial complex was the cause of hundreds of thousands of deaths, millions of Iraqis displaced, and the ongoing suffering. And he never sought justice for it. And that's what disappoints me the most. Reading like a lot of the op-ed pieces or the focus has been on his vaccine, vaccination status. Oh my God, like well, he was double vaccinated but still died of COVID. And I'm like, this guy never saw, was never trialed. People have gone to prison for a lot worse, for a lot less. And yet this guy sought out his like last few uh, remaining days, like comfortable with his fa- relatively comfortable with his family. Um, so it's just an interesting perspective to have. Yeah, we actually have that video. We can watch some of it unless it's maybe too infuriating, but we can probably watch part of it. 
we can do like a mystery science theater thing with it where we watch part of the testimony and we can comment on it. I think it's worth, you know, watching dive and in just to see what he really did at this pivotal moment. It's not, it's pretty rare that you get to see the most important moment in someone's life on videotape. And we get to see his, and we really can be, you know, the judge. Yeah. Of uh, It's not, it's rare that you actually can, you know, stand in judgment of somebody's actions, but Hey, they're here, they're laid out, and he committed to this uh, on camera for the world to see. That was the yeah. point. Right. So we probably should honor him by watching this. And this is from the UN shortly before, you know, he was the guy who had the cred to sell this war when he was Secretary of State. I can share with you, when combined with what all of us have learned over the years, is deeply troubling. What you will see is an accumulation of facts and disturbing patterns of behavior. The facts in Iraqis' behavior, Iraq's behavior, demonstrate that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort, to disarm as required by the international community. Indeed, the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. You see, he doesn't sound unsure to me. He sounds pretty sure. Oh, you have to unpause it. Uh, you. Yeah, he just seems like the confidence, like people are talking about it's a mistake. He sounds pretty sure of himself right here. of terrorism long before these terrorist networks had a name. And this support continues. The nexus of poisons and terror is new. The nexus. He sounds more confident than I am when I give my birthday at the, the pharmacy. Like he, that's like he he's more sure of this than anything else. So. Take their place alongside the other Iraqi denials of weapons of mass destruction. It is all a web of lies. When we confront a regime that harbors ambitions for regional domination, hides weapons of mass destruction, and provides haven and active support for terrorists, we are not confronting the past. We are confronting the present. And unless we act, we are confronting an even yeah, as, Glo as Glove Arm says, what he's sure of is that he won't get in trouble for these lies. That's why he's confident. Thank That's why he's confident. Patience, he knows he won't one more pay any consequences like for it, which turned out to be the case. It should be a subject of deep and continuing concern to this council. Saddam Hussein's violations of human rights. Underlying all that I have said, underlying all the facts and the patterns of behavior that I have identified is Saddam Hussein's contempt for the will of this council. His contempt for the truth and most damning of all. I always find it fascinating that like, Clinton was impeached for lying about having sexual relations. I, and I understand that's under oath and things, but this this resulted in people's death, yeah. as in quite literally people's death. And nobody kind of, no judgment, no testimonies, no judicial hearings, nothing. Hussein's use of mustard and nerve gas against the Kurds in 1988, 1988 was one of the 20th century's most horrible atrocities. 5,000 men, women, and children died. His campaign against the Kurds from 1987 to 89 included mass summary executions, disappearances, arbitrary jailing, ethnic cleansing, and the destruction of some 2,000 villages. He has also conducted ethnic cleansing against the Shia Iraqis and the Marsh Arabs, whose culture has flourished for more than a millennium. Sodom yeah, and he's not mentioning how he, what weapons he used and who he got them from for these acts of ethnic cleansing. He's not mentioning the fact that he was a U.S. ally. 
also the uh, the when he refers to the Shia ethnic cleansing, and that's he's referring to them after the ninety one Gulf War. George H W. So the original George Bush, he um, actually gave support towards the Shia, saying, "I will support you in in your bid to overthrow Saddam." They turned their back on him. They turned their back on their Shia, on the Shia. So Saddam took the uh, the onus on him to then go commit genocide. So he was also, and he was um, at the time chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So he was also complicit in that genocide by turning their back on a pledge that they'd made of support. Yeah. And I'm glad that you mentioned, we're going to get to this shortly, but whenever you want to talk, just talk and we'll pause it. But I'm glad you mentioned the first Gulf War in your piece, by the way, because that's something that's often incorrectly framed as the good Gulf War. Yeah. Who dares to dissent? Iraq has more forced disappearance cases than any other country. Tens of thousands of people reported missing in the past decade. Nothing points more clearly to Saddam Hussein's dangerous intentions and the threat he poses to all of us than his calculated cruelty to his own citizens and to his neighbors. Clearly, Saddam Hussein and his regime will stop at nothing until something stops him. For more than 20 years, by word and by deed, Saddam Hussein has pursued his ambition to dominate Iraq and the broader Middle East using the only means he knows, intimidation, coercion, and annihilation of all those who might stand in his way. Well, someone does that. Saddam Hussein, that is someone's MO, but not Iraq's. I believe that's the United States. The one he must hold to fulfill his ambition. We know that Saddam Hussein is determined to keep his weapons of mass destruction. He's determined to make more. Given Saddam Hussein's history of aggression, given what we know of his grandiose plans, given what we know of his terrorist associations, and given his determination, and that that was disproved exactly the uh, the link between Al Qaeda and Saddam. Oh right, so the link between Al Qaeda and Saddam. And Saddam right. was this, yeah. Donald Rumsfeld made the same um, statement as well, saying there's a there's a direct link, and it was disproved later on. There's yeah, a good and piece it, in the Washington Post about that. If anyone's interested. Well, Ari Fleischer, all praise be upon him. After Bush was even president. In 2006, I believe, he said that we couldn't take the chance that he was defending invading Iraq and overthrowing Saddam Hussein. He said we couldn't take the chance that we'd be hit again after 9-11. Yeah. He said this on Hardball with Chris Matthews. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And somehow Chris Matthews didn't even catch that. And this was after Bush himself admitted that there was no connection. I've written a piece similar to the one about power after Rumsfeld's death and I describe how six, after six hours after the Twin Towers fell, Donald Rumsfeld wrote a note when he was um, Secretary of Defense. He wrote a note saying, "Find a way to link this back to Saddam Hussein." Like as in, I, and he didn't care what how valid that evidence was. He just said, "Find a way that we can now attack Saddam." So it was clear that historically these were all like fabricated statements for to I guess garner public support into right. uh, an Iraq invasion. Should we take the risk? that he will not someday use these weapons at a time and a place and in a manner of his choosing at a time when the world is in a much weaker position to respond. The United States will not and cannot run that risk to the American people. Leaving Saddam Hussein in possession of weapons of mass destruction for a few more months or years is not an option, not in a post-September 11th world. 
My colleagues, over three months ago, this Council recognized that Iraq continued to pose a threat to international peace and security, and that Iraq had been and remained in material breach of its disarmament obligations. Today, Iraq still poses a threat, and Iraq still remains in material breach. Indeed, by its failure to seize on its one last opportunity to come clean and disarm, Iraq has put itself in deeper material breach and closer to the day when it will face serious consequences for its continued defiance of this Council. My colleagues, we have an obligation to our citizens. We have an obligation to this body to see that our resolutions are complied with. We wrote 1441 not in order to go to war. We wrote 1441 to try to preserve the peace. We wrote 1441 to give Iraq one last chance. Iraq is not so far taking that one last chance. We must not shrink from whatever is ahead of us. We must not fail in our duty and our responsibility to the citizens of the countries that are represented by this body. Okay, so this is was not some mistake, right? Ahmed, can you talk to us about something about this, which you mentioned in your piece, how he, he was very intentionally misrepresenting the truth. And in fact, he didn't want to invade Iraq, right? He opposed that decision? He was hesitant. I, I, I wouldn't go so much as to say fully opposed it. I think that's kind of uh, something that was said about him in retrospect. And I didn't mean that in a good, in, to give him credit. I meant that he he didn't actually, I think he, he thought that perhaps wouldn't be strategic. He went along with it, even though yeah. he knew it was wrong. Which makes it maybe yeah. worse, but worse. sorry, yeah, I yeah, cut possibly. you off. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. As in, he he's himself has admitted that, like, he what, what he was worried is that it's almost a blot on his reputation is what he right. said in the past. Um, which for me, I think is even a, such a disrespectful way to even talk about something like that. Like people have, like people haven't sought justice and are suffering and you're worried about your reputation, like kind of just isn't quite fair. But yeah, I, yeah, he, he wasn't as, I guess, pro-war as someone like Rumsfeld was, but still publicly, pushed the line for war um, and told the reason you know he even falsified evidence so in um in that speech as well he's at one point he says that iraqis like hid all the weapons of mass destruction and he quotes a piece and then actually the actual translation from the state department of this quote that he's given isn't that they hid them is that they were saying we offered you to come look for the weapons of mass destruction so it's kind of like he was actively choosing to mis mistell the truths in order to garner support for like the UN resolution 4041 and what the, what happened after. Right. Yes. It said it would it it he misrepresented the actual language. Yeah, as in I can quote to you exactly what was said if yeah. you give me a second. Sure. Um so uh, and Bob Woodward actually describes it in his book as well. So he'd he'd written um what he what he said and what he quoted was that the Iraqi Republic, Republican Guard had created a system of hiding things and moving things out of the way, and what he said was they requested them to clean out all areas, the scrap areas, the abandoned areas, make sure nothing is there. And the original message that the State Department has since released was that they all they said what the Iraqi said was to inspect the scrap areas and the abandoned areas. What Powell added was, 
um, to clean out all areas. So he added that sentence to clean out, to make it look like the Iraqis were covering up for something which they weren't. And we've since found out later. So yeah, you're right. Like he did, he was more hesitant than people like Rumsfeld, but still peddled the same lies that they were peddling. Like Rumsfeld even to, to at one point said, I know exactly where the WMDs are. Like he, he said, I can pinpoint them for you. And, you know, to this day, we're still looking. Right. Remember Bush joked about them being under his desk? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was at the um, the press dinner, right? The um, I don't know. I think he actually did it like in his actual office. I think it was even worse. I think oh, maybe he did it twice. Maybe it was part of his repertoire. Yeah, and yeah. then, of course, Obama <laughs> joked about droning um, the Jonas Brothers if they yeah. dated his daughters. That was at the press, the White House press dinner. Yeah. Even though he did let his daughter intern with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, it's just a good to, point. Yeah. Just to, <laughs> just to clarify. So, and Wilkerson, right? Wilkerson, who was his chief of staff. Chief of staff, yeah was distraught by this at least in retrospect right you you mentioned yeah. that yeah so he'd written how um conan powell like it, as soon as he like left that meeting especially um how he was uh, openly uh, um, in doubt about what he was saying but he still chose to still talk about those issues yeah but then again it's like just just because you present doubt in private but you continue to do things publicly doesn't make you not any less complicit you're still no I think he, I mean, I think this is what makes part of his, his legacy and his life so troubling is that he, he is, was supposed to be the adult in the room. Yeah. Like he's not uh, an ideological neocon the same way. I mean, he's part of the military industrial complex. He's an imperialist, right? But like he wasn't the unhinged neocon that the, that like Rumsfeld was, um, which makes his, his like calculated decision to lie that much more disturbing in some ways. Uh, no, I, I agree, but I think he's developed, he maybe is in order to progress politically, but he kind of had this trend where he's done it in the past. And I guess the 91 war was another example where he did, he did a very similar thing when they bombed the only um, baby formula factory in Iraq. And he, that he released a statement saying, we know for sure that this wasn't a baby formula. And then in, uh, and then in, in, in said it is not an instant formula factory. It was a biological weapons facility. Of that, we are sure. Yeah, and then they later found out that actually no, it was a baby um, formula factory. And then you have the My Lai massacre in Vietnam as well, where five hundred unarmed in what's been described as a war crime, five hundred unarmed Vietnamese uh, in South Vietnam were killed by uh, American soldiers, and he was sent to investigate, and he turned around saying you know, relations between the Vietnamese and American people are at an all-time high. Yeah. And um, I just guess that, yeah, maybe he doesn't believe what he's saying entirely, but it, it's quite, it's almost narcissistic to say these things to be able to progress in your career when you're looking out for your own like career benefits. If he disagreed with the Iraq war and pushed, and, and, and pushed against Bush, I don't think he would have been stayed in, 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 his, in the administration. He'd probably been kicked out, and that's why he was willing to sit there and, and continue... Um, peddling the lies that George Bush was was so adamant to follow. And can you talk about the Powell Doctrine, which you also mentioned in your piece? Yeah, so it's an interesting doctrine. So it's like quite a lot of people have actually praised it. And I think there are some positives of it where it's a, a number of different things that he um, he recommends as prerequisites to American military inter intervention. 
And it's things like, has diplomacy been tried? Has this been tried? Has that been tried? But should all of those factors have been addressed, what he then proposed was for maximum use of force to once and for all annihilate whatever it is that they were what were going to attack. So that was applied in 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 the ninety one Gulf War after the um, after the uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait. Obviously, they quite quickly lost to the American um, to the Americans. So when they began retreating, part of what the power doctrine suggested was you need to destroy everything in its process. So this is considered a, a potential war crime as well. When a, an army is retreating, the Americans went and, and, and annihilated the the. Um, the retreating soldiers and the tanks and the people like that. So it's quite difficult uh, for us to understand really, you know, he's presented it as something that's good, this power doctrine, but in reality, when it's implemented, it's actually quite devastating and innocent lives are definitely going to be lost in the process. Yeah. I mean, and you refer to the highway of death. Yeah. So that was, yeah, it was all, they were all on one road, this, this retreating army. There was one road from Kuwait back to, back to Basra and it's been dubbed Highway of Death because it was just... Highway 80, I think. Highway 80, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like nonstop uh, attack um, by the Americans and just killed and, and destroyed any tank, any of the soldiers that were along on the route. Yeah, it was really disgusting. Total war crime. I mean, reading at Jalopnik, I guess they, they published this in January 2016 because it was the 25-year 25, 25 anniversary. Iraqi forces were annihilated while retreating on the Highway of Death 25 years ago. Highway 80 was a six-lane highway leading across the desert from Basra, Iraq, to Kuwait City. It was one of the main highways that gave Iraq quick access into Kuwait during their uh, invasion of the country, but their return trip would be much less triumphant and horrifically deadly. On the night of February 26, 1991, after over a month of heavy bombardment and facing the full onslaught of advancing coalition grand forces, thousands of Iraqi military personnel and vehicles, as well as a sea of stolen Kuwaiti cars parked with looted valuables, attempted to retreat from Kuwait. At the time, Iraq had announced that it would withdraw, but it had not yet accepted the UN resolutions passed against them. There were not many route options that ran between Iraq and Kuwait to stage a large-scale military retreat. As a result, a massive amount of Saddam's forces deployed months earlier to seize Kuwait were now crowded along the few highways that led out of the country and into Iraq, the main one being Highway 80. The intelligence on the ground in Kuwait reported that the Iraqis were packing up, but no hard, actionable intelligence could be had for targeting the retreating force, Kuwaiti intelligence advisors told U.S. commanders that their countrymen would not be among the traffic leaving and that the coalition should engage freely. Then one of America's newest superweapons, the E-8 Joint Surveillance and Targeting Radar System, made to detect and track moving vehicles on the ground, reported something unusual. What appeared on their radar scopes seemed to be a huge convoy traveling north, leaving Kuwait City and heading towards Kuwait's northern border with Iraq. USMCA-6E intruders that were patrolling the Kuwaiti coastline were first on the scene and armed ideally for the grim job, job at hand. The jets were carrying Mark 20 Rockeye cluster munitions, which could rain devastation of a fairly wide area. The intruders aimed at the front and rear of the convoy. If the munitions landed correctly, the tactic would trap all the remaining vehicles in between burning vehicles and cratered sections of highway on both ends of the convoy, in effect, it would turn the roughly four-mile stretch of road into a bombing range. The cluster munitions did their job. Both ends of escape were cut off, and vehicles at the head of the convoy careened into one another if they were not destroyed by the crescendo of sub-munitions. 
Yeah. So um, there's nothing like it, according to an A-10 Warthog pilot involved in the attacks. There was just nothing like it. It's the biggest 4th of July show you've ever seen. And to see those tanks just going boom and more stuff just keep spewing out of them and shells flying out to the ground, they just become white hot. It's wonderful. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, the journalists on TV talked a lot about this too. They were very happy to see the bombing and the explosions. They were like, I forget, I mean, was it Tom? It was broke off or one of one of the major anchors was just talking about how beautiful uh, it was to see on TV. I remember watching the coverage because it was uh, generally considered the first live TV war where you can see us raining death upon people like live while it was happening. Yeah. Yeah. And six, they think that like 500 to 600 people died in the highway of death. Yeah. Yeah. The, the numbers on, they don't know. As in some numbers going yeah. to the thousands. Yeah. They don't, right. like, you can't, you can't tell. Yeah. It's probably more than whatever the, whatever the estimates are that we hear yeah. about in the United yeah. States. There's video. So that's the key, the highway. As in, you can see there's nowhere for them to go to stay safe. This is just a road that's left on fire. Yeah, I just I just find it funny how like like we t- we talk about all these people um, like we talk about let's say Saddam doing like terrible things. Oh, this is uh this is when it was made into a video game by Call of Duty, I think. And, and they changed, so they changed it from from Americans to Russians. Yes, yes, this was very interesting. They did the Highway of Death, but they said, yeah, it was it wasn't Americans who did it; it was the Russians. Yeah. Oh, they made the Russians do it? Yes. Yeah, it was the Russians that were the bad guys doing it, not the Americans. That's funny that they came up, but that actually is really relevant. <laughs> yeah, it is. There's, there's, a, there's an interesting game coming out um, called Six Days in Fallujah. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, I, I've written a whole piece on it, actually, for foreign policy. But it's, um, it's looking at, it's basically you play the role of an American in that six days of insurgency in Fallujah, um, of them trying to like fight the insurgency in Fallujah, and you play the role of an American soldier going door to door, and you'll open the door and see like innocent Iraqi uh, families like shivering, and you have to make the decision: do you kill them or not? And you play this as a game, and uh, like it's 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 what some people have considered a war crime, where over eight hundred people have died, and the use of white phosphorus and things like that, and it's been turned into an entertainment like it's it's quite a, a difficult thing to consider and then you've got this example where the where the russians have made the bad guys and what yes. like watching the american like story like it's it's a bit surreal yeah it's awful um yeah and no one talks about that no one's heard of the highway of death yeah and well, the other thing like uh he, where colin powell was like I guess complaining about the chem- use of chemical weapons by uh, by Saddam Hussein on the Kurds, but you know, like at the time there was a busk of um, of what uh, Winston Churchill sat in the White House in the Oval Office, and the first person to advocate for the use of chemical weapon against the Kurds is Winston Churchill. Oh wow! Back back in the nineteen twenties, and you know we whitewashed that 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 storyline, and he's now presented as a hero, a, a war hero, um, and revered within the White House and the UK. Right, um, but I think what what you were saying before I even came on about how like um, you know he Colin Powell was someone who's black. It's quite an interesting uh, thing. Like people kind of like admire the fact. Oh, it's the first 
black NSA um, national security advisor, the first black, um, you know, in the in the administration. It's quite, it, I, and I would say this is a similar story with someone like Hillary Clinton, where everyone's like, let's vote for Harris president. You know, we it's t- about time we have the first woman president. And, you know, I'm, I completely support a woman going for president, just not her. Like, just because he's, he, Colin Powell was black doesn't mean he made good decisions. Just because Hillary Clinton was a woman doesn't mean she would have made a good president. As in, I still think that had she been president, we would have seen troops in Syria. Like, it's it's quite, right. um, it's just, it's just, uh, it, it's quite difficult when uh, the liberals just can't see past the reality. They just see literally the surface thing. Oh, you know, let's have the first black president, the first black secretary of defense, the first black. Um, but when you just go a little bit scratch under the surface, um, you see quite a lot different. How do you compare Rums? It must've been a hard year for, it's been a hard year for all of us between yeah. Rumsfeld and, uh, oh, and Powell. I'm sure you're still in mourning. Um, well, Rumsfeld was, I don't know how you compared the two of them, but I do know one thing, which is that only one of the two, two men was in People's Most Beautiful People. Sexiest. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I'm not yeah. even kidding. You know I can believe that. I was, was, it, was I not on the list? I would assume Colin Powell. <laughs> I would assume really? Colin Powell would be one of the sexist people because Rumsfeld was always controversial. Colin Powell always had a good. Rumsfeld was actually beloved, like by the media. They like they literally loved him. I don't, I don't know what it was. Maybe his like what I would say is like his belligerent smile. But they the media kind of loved him. He used to see, I, say see, facts as they were. See, in my I, I was already watching more left sort of media by that time for with what Rumsfeld. So maybe I don't have the memory, but I do remember Colin Powell always had the positive, but Rumsfeld sexiest man. Wow. People names Rummy sexiest. I yeah. I remember need to when go this do a deep dive into the Rumsfeld. I'm trying I do to not remember this people magazine and it's and in its annual sexiest man alive issue has named us defense secretary, Donald Rumsfeld 70. Uh, this is in 2002, the sexiest cabinet member. Wow. People lauds Rumsfeld for his blunt talk and wry humor and quotes CNN Pentagon correspondent Barbara Starr calling him a big, flirty pussycat. It's like a... We're, I guess when you're competing with George Bush, then... Uh, yeah, yeah, the chat is split because <laughs> half of us remember Rumsfeld always just being a creep and the other half do remember this. This is very strange. I do. I, 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 I always thought Rumsfeld was a creep and everybody knew he was kind of a creep, but I guess... We have the facts here. He was kind of treated with this. The, the media turned on him. I, would, I think it was around 2004. That's uh, when the media really turned on him. So, like, if you if you were following before that, maybe he was a lot more he was a lot more loved, and then they turned on him after. Well, let's see who the competition was because obviously you got like uh, you know the real guys that he was up against: Ben Affleck, Tom Cruise, John Leguizamo, uh, right? George Clooney. Um, okay, that's one thing. But the the real the people that from the cabinet that he beat were, let's see, this guy Norman Mineta, um, transportation secretary. I don't remember him at all. Do you guys remember Norm? <laughs> Norman Mineta. Hold on, let me show you him. This is what he looks like. Okay, so this is Norman. No memory of him. Do you guys remember him? Um, Oh, uh, Japanese immigrant uh, parents, Mineta. 
Oh, Mineta, not Italian, yeah. like I was yeah, saying. It would be, it would be, yeah, it's Japanese, so Mineta. Yeah. Mineta. Mineta, yeah. So, okay, nice comb over. <laughs> not striking me as terribly sexy. No, not for, I, like I mean, I'll be honest. <clears throat> yeah, the glasses are good. Oh, he was actually in an internment camp. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. I'll read his book. Wow. Interesting life, but not a good guy because he was uh, worked for Bush. He was in the Bush administration, the book Bush cabinet. And then John Ashcroft. I mean, that is just like you guys have seen John Ashcroft, right? I mean, honestly, it should have been Mineta out of the three of them. Definitely should have been Mineta. Hold on. Let me show you Ashcroft. Ashcroft was in the singing senators. I don't know if you know about them. You should, you should do a Twitter about on, on this. <laughs> this is the sexiest war criminal. Yeah, I mean, Ashcroft, he just looks like a like a gallon of milk. Like there's nothing. Yeah, sexy he's about he's him. really no. Not Maybe at he's all. tall or something and that impressed the journalists. I don't know. They're Rumsfeld or Ashcroft. Maybe Ashcroft is like six four or something. He looks oh, like he? he might be a tall. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Oh, you're guessing, yeah. guessing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, well, yeah. So so Powell did not make that. Rumsfeld beat him on that count. Yeah, I'm sh- I'm sure Powell's turning in his grave still yeah. because of. <laughs> I know Leslie, you have to leave soon, but um, Leslie, do you want to make any final comments or ask Ahmed anything, and then maybe if I can steal a couple more minutes from you, even though it's late where you are. Oh yeah, no! I, I, oh, I think we've just been having a, a great conversation. It's just yeah. nice to remember who Colin Powell really was. Like every every opportunity in his life. He, uh, whether it was my lie, whether it was uh, the first Iraq war, the second Iraq war, he chose to uh, say yes, sir, to whoever asked him to do something. And he never took a stand for anybody but or anything but his own career. (laughs) Did you guys see um, Donald Trump's comments on him? Oh, yes. That was great. That when, was great. When when Donald Trump beats Katie, okay, you should read it in the enemy. voice. I'm you going, gotta read it in the voice. I'm not good at. Can you do? Can you do it? I can't can do. do I, I can't I can really do, Bernie do Trump. If Bernie I can said fake something. a Trump. Let me. Let do, me let's, yeah, let's try it. Let me look for statement. Uh-huh. Let me pull it. If you can pull it up, I forget. All right, one of the funniest things ever. All right, I have it. Okay, you have it. All right. All right. Statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th President of the United States of America. Wonderful to see Colin Powell, who made big mistakes on Iraq and famously so-called weapons of mass destruction, be treated in death so beautifully by the fake news media. Hope that happens to me someday. He was a classic rhino, if even that, always being the first to attack other Republicans. He made plenty of mistakes, but anyway, may he rest in peace. (laughs) That's so great. But anyway. But anyway, but anyway, may he rest in peace. Is, it's is so good. Mode, like <laughs> No, it's perfect. It's the best thing anyone had to say about to be honest. It really is. It's so good. We should read all of his comments on everyone. Oh, he said something about Liz Cheney today. Low polling Liz uh, low polling Liz Cheney, 19% is actually very bad news for the Democrats. People absolutely cannot stand her as she fights for the people that have decimated her and her father for many years. She is a smug fool, and the great state of Wyoming, together with the Republican Party, fully understands her act. 
To look at her is to despise her. Hopefully, hopefully she will continue down this unsustainable path and she will soon be gone. Man, it almost makes you miss him. It almost makes you miss him. I know. At least somebody's telling the truth. I mean, because Liz Cheney is tied in Sometimes, this as yeah. well. It's just an absolute monster and is to know her, is to despise her. So I think that absolutely fair as well. Low polling Liz. Low polling yeah, Liz. Did you see the tweet she put um, where she like, literally, she was like, I love presidents who get voted twice and put a picture of George Bush. Like, oh, it's just. Oh. I think this is last week and it's just like uh, come on like you're literally promoting somebody who I think most of America now recognizes as a possible war criminal yes he's part of the resistance and the funny thing is she could have actually now now he's he's dancing with Ellen DeGeneres on on on, on TV and a a national um, and that's that's funny because if she's actually were going to reach out to all these Democrats that are trying to defend her, she would have posted a picture of Obama because he got elected yeah. twice. Like, why right. is she she's like she went she like wants all these she people cut. to know that she has no respect for them. Like, not even right. the little, not even a little bit. She's not going to give an inch. So I no, don't know her why father is like. I mean, he's such a disgust to know to know what he say to see her is to loathe her. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, then to see, but if that's true, then to see Dick Cheney as to what wanna like actually. Well, we can't say it again. Can't say anything, on, right? No, we can't, we can't yeah. say it on YouTube. Wanna throw a party? I yeah. just hope that you know one day the whole the gang one day soon the gang is hold all together. You know, Rumsfeld, Colin, um, Dick, Georgie. I hope they. Con- Condi, I hope they're all together very, very soon. That's all I'll say. Yeah. Get we the band back to, together. Yeah, we want to get, get the, the band, band back COVID, get the band back together. COVID, get the band back together. It's just well, disgusting knowing that Bush is now an artist. Oh, yeah. A proponent of immigrate, immigrants and all this stuff. It's just... And having interviews, like, it's just... It, like, seeing those things disgusts me. Like, how... Did you see this, by the way? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Stop anti-Semitism. That's the nation's Palestine correspondent and Time Magazine's most influential influential 100 people for 2021 just wished death on Henry Kissinger, a Jewish man. Okay. And then they quote Mohammed Elford tweeting, why is it never Henry Kissinger? I'm offended as a Jew that Henry Kissinger is framed as a Jewish man. I... Honestly, Katie, I've talked a lot about how much I hate this man. I did not know he was Jewish. And I just really? want to apologize to you. I'm, I think maybe so I knew it. I just never thought about him. it because oh, it I doesn't see. matter. You know, I might have well, he, heard he never, the like, fact. openly identified as like. Well, no, know, not only that. Well, so I, I tweeted, stop anti-Semitism's Twitter account. Just invisibilize the countless Jews like me who asked the same question about Henry Kissinger. Stop the erasure. Because <laughs> two can play at that game. But no, he has this fo- quote about not caring about the Soviets gassing Jews and how it's not an American problem. He's also a fancy, not to, okay, a little bit of like inter-Jew inside baseball. He's a fancy German Jew. Yeah. See, he's not like shtetl Eastern European Jew. They he's weren't bougie. very good. To, he's very, yeah, he's bougie, bougie Jew. You know, he has a brother, Walter, who died in, in 2021. So we lost one Kissinger this week. 
I mean, this year, excuse me, this year. And he was 96. People did propose the disturbing theory that he's actually absorbing the life force of the other war criminals. And so that every time, (laughs) like, one of these headlines happens, he's actually becoming more powerful. Yeah, me me neither. Him and and Dick Cheney, maybe. It sounds like to have a long life, the more crimes you do... The longer better, you live. yeah. Like, the longer yes, you live, yeah. yes. Very Lovecraftian. Yeah. Well, Katie, <laughs> yeah. I, I do have okay, to go. Leslie has to go. But um, Ahmed, Ahmed, thank you so much. Uh, great article, so uh, wonderful yes. uh, meeting you. Um, rest in peace, uh, Colin Powell. Thank y'all so yeah. much. Have a good night. Bye, Leslie. Bye. And anything else you want to tell us about? You know, you you still have family there in Iraq, by the way. Yeah, I still got some aunts and uncles out there. So how did your, did your family have any feelings about his passing? Um, I guess for lack of a better word, it's like, I guess, good riddance almost. Right. Um, yeah. It's just the infuriation of never seeing justice. Right. Like, yeah. Yes. As you write, you say at the end, right? You say at the end of your piece. It yeah, disappoints- let's get Bush before it's too late. Yeah. yeah. Right. Before it's too late, we must hold to account George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and the other surviving engineers of the catastrophe Iraq endures to this day. I would add Henry Kissinger to that list as well. Yeah. Um, Never forget Henry. Stop invisibilizing him. Yeah. Um, Hashtag it. Hashtag, yeah. Hashtag never forget Henry. Uh, NFH. and you you write quite frequently. You have a, a couple of really great pieces, but one I want to ask you about was the climate piece that you wrote, also in the, the Independent. Climate crisis was, demands, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Climate crisis demands a redistribution of wealth to fix it. So, can you just summarize to people what uh, your argument is there? Yeah. So, I guess it's kind of like looking at history um, as to how how America and like the UK and other like developed nations are so big and powerful, and it's because they've historically abused the climate crisis, the 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 environment um, through like deforestation. Like seventy five percent of America's forests were completely like destroyed, and that was to grow cotton. There was a slave by the name of John Parker who um, who became an abolitionist after, and he wrote he would see. Um, fields and fields of uh, forests and forests just on fire and that was just so that people could grow cotton and that's where America's economy was built from and it's kind of like this history of um, and like I guess it's continued abuse of, of the climate by western powers and we kind of almost assume that developed countries are going to be able to achieve the same thing and unfortunately even like even like kind of powerful economies like I would say like Brazil and uh, and China they're never going to be able to compete with America, who's now almost uh, reached a place where it can rely on fossil fuels less than it did before um, because of how, uh, I guess, developed it has um, the renewable, renewable sources, which are way too expensive for countries in Africa to develop, to, to purchase. So the only way for us to be able to really consider climate change and to tackle it is to have a lot of the money that's I guess, hoarded in the West, redistributed to the rest of the world so that we can tackle this jointly. Because there's no way that a country like um, America would be so powerful if they hadn't um, exploited the, uh, the environment. And we can't expect a country, in, in a poor country, let's say in Africa, to develop well if it doesn't exploit the environment as, as well. Like it's just too expensive for them to be able to achieve. 
And I think some of the things that continue to happen, like, yes, Joe Biden walks around saying that, you know, it's like code red for climate crisis and, you know, let's have a whole whole of government um, uh, uh, technique to tackling climate the climate change. It's fair enough that he says that. Fair enough that he, like, signs back into the Paris Agreement and the Liberals, like, are all excited about it. But he's also signed 78 million acres of offshore drilling um, off the Gulf of Mexico for for oil. And that's like a, a huge amount of um, oil to happen. And the same thing like with um, with Justin Trudeau and how everyone, all the liberals loved, like we're talking about how great he is as well. And then at the same time, he signed um, the bill for the Keystone Pipeline. And it just continues to happen. And there's also the, the, the line three that Joe Biden has signed and approved, which is another like massively carbon emitting um, um, uh, project. So it's this whole, I guess, unfairness that I, I'm, I'm arguing in the article where uh, countries in, in the past have exploited the environment and we're expecting poorer countries to be able to do the same. Um, to to be able to help tackle the climate crisis, and they never will be able to achieve that. Biden's done a bunch of other things as well, like um, the, the his um, the, his uh, industrial plan. So the, this whole build back better business that he's been talking about, uh, he's completely he's removed a lot of the green New Deal plans that he had um, suggested. Okay, let's see. This is a question related back to what we we're talking about earlier. But Wendy Melias Ahmed, is your family in Iraq able to? Normally, is the U.S. still a notable occupying presence there? Um, so the U.S. withdrew from Iraq in 2011. Like, it technically withdrew from Iraq. So there's no real presence on the street. There are, are still military bases where the U.S. Army is there, but they're not. You don't really see them. There is like it's an unstable country. So it's, it depends what how you define normal, really. Um, uh, so yeah, I would, and I agree with that last statement about line three. Yeah, it's beyond current birthday rates. It's beyond depressing to see MSM lack of coverage about line three. Yeah, we got we did a show about this with Dallas Goldtooth, but we need to do another one. You had also had a piece on Afghanistan. So, so I don't know if you remember there was the, um, the attack on the airport that happened, and then thirteen U.S. soldiers died, and that was kind of what, what grabbed all the headlines across America. Um, that 13 years and in that same attack countless number of afghans died and for me that was what i wrote i was like afghan lives basically matter also like it's not just the american servicemen who died who um who were like there technically in combat it's also about the innocent um afghans who died as well like we need to mention those names and numbers so that's what i'm discussing in, in that article and it's happen- it happens all the time like it's always just like this kind of like number that we kind of quote, whereas when it comes to American lives, we kind of revere them a lot more um, than anywhere else. Like if there was an attack in, um, if there was a bomb that happens in, in, in Baghdad, it probably wouldn't even reach headline news. Whereas if, you know, an attack happens in America and not not even, someone doesn't, doesn't even die. So like the, I don't know if you remember in, in December, there was the, the attack in Nashville, the bomb in Nashville when nobody died. The in Tennessee, uh, mm-hmm. and that was like headline news for a couple of days. Uh, I guess it's it's understandable because it's domestic, but at the same time, um, when it happens in Baghdad and hundreds of people die, it doesn't really they, they, those lives still matter too, kind of thing. Right, unless they're if they're American lives and they 
if they're like if they're servicemen, service, yeah, yeah, they're gonna hit the headlines quick time, right? Yeah, it's very depressing. Then you had a, your COVID article. So then you had the climate change article. You had a COVID article. Then you had the, your pin tweet is a really good Israel Palestine one that you wrote. Yeah, so, yeah. So there's a few. Of the, so the Israel Palestine one, I guess that was so that that was looking at there was um, an attack that happened that um, during the recent violence uh, between Gaza and Israel, um, where Israeli airstrikes attacked an MSF clinic, health clinic, um, and I just argued was just discussing how attack on healthcare systems across the world is, as in the sanctity of health has completely been obliterated even though it's been for decades uh, 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 considered a war crime if health facilities were attacked um, but unfortunately Israel has made it somewhat of a trend and seemed to get away with it when they when when they have the excuse of saying oh yeah but Hamas is doing something there uh, nobody needs to investigate it anymore and um, that's just it's just my call of saying, actually, no, we do need transparent investigations. Like, you can't take the word of an aggressor. It's like saying, you know, if if, if somebody's committed a crime in, in, in your city, they're, they're, he's going to be the person that investigates his own crime. It just, it just, we, we would never accept it anywhere else, but we seem to have accepted it in, in the time of war. So that's kind of what that article talks about. Um, and I just, yeah, that one is quite, it's kind of... What's interesting is that that attack, uh, or attacking hospitals in general, it was was set as a precedent by the the US. So I don't know if you remember in two thousand and fifteen, when the Americans attacked a hospital in Kunduz, Afghanistan, um, over the period of one hour, when the Afghans were sending messages saying "Don't attack us, don't attack us," like when the MSF, sorry, the Doctors Without Borders, were sending messages saying "Don't attack us," um, the Americans replied saying. Um, we will uh, uh, we will do our best praying for you was the response as opposed to let's stop um obviously thoughts and prayers is something that's going to help them um and that set a precedent for when saudi bombed a doctors without borders hospital in in um in yemen because it became a kind of a process where people were saying you know it was an accident we didn't know it was there was a hospital america was never like charged for it we shouldn't be charged for it either and then Israel has done it a few times in the past as well. That's, this, this, this most recent example is just one of them, but they've attacked hospitals before. They've killed like patients in hospitals before. And then um, also Bashar al-Assad did the same thing in, in Syria. So it's kind of become more of a, a precedent that's been happening over and over. So that's what that piece relates to. Yeah. Uh, did you see Abby Martin's film, Gaza Fight for Freedom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which Abby yeah. Martin and Mike Preisner. It's like, it's a really effective film in part because they're so, and it's funny because Abby and Mike are both very, um, in a very good way, kind of not emotional, but they are very, they're righteously indignant um, yeah. often as they should be. And this is just, they're kind of, you know, just go through exactly why Israel's crimes are so indisputable. Yeah. It's just like, you know, this UN law, this UN charter, this UN convention, um, and one of the things, one of the focuses of the film for people who haven't seen it is how they target, um, healthcare workers. And that's something you wrote about. Yeah. That you were. And so what, what did you focus on when you were doing that? Like what, what can you share your, your findings? So the, the, that, 
Oh, sorry. With the um. Oh, sorry. I was your master's. Yeah. So that so that was Iraq specific. So that was right. um slightly different. Like what I found with that one was that actually it's um what I expected to find. Like what my like I guess hypothesis was was that it's going to be like the risk of terrorism and insurgency on on Iraqi healthcare workers and kidnapping and things like that. But actually, what I found was that it's um. It was tribal retribution that was the biggest violent risk to, to Iraqis, uh, Iraqi doctors. And the reason is um, the, the system that works in Iraq, because there is no rule of law um, and there is no state structure, if a mistake happens or if anything happens in a hospital, if a patient dies, tribes demand justice and it's through blood money. Um, so doctors avoid doing procedures. So let's say, for example, somebody's in a car crash and they develop a punctured lung. The treatment is to put a chest drain in. Um, you know, they may or may not survive, but at least let's give them a chance by putting the drain in and hopefully they'll survive. Um, but in Iraq, doctors will hesitate to put that drain in. They would rather the patient just not give them a chance, let them die. Because if they put the drain in and then the patient dies, the tribes will turn around and say, but you killed the patient. Right. So that's where the... And if they the don't like intervene violence. and the patient dies, they won't do that. They won't do it because then the, then the patient died from the car crash. The doctor right. didn't do anything. Um, whereas if the doctor intervened, they, they will blame the patient. So it's a risk. Yeah. Do I actually try to save the patient or let yeah. them bleed out or whatever it is? Um, so that's what that, that finding was. Um, but it's interesting. Like what, what another thing that I found was that the, 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 in any in any war, the first profession to uh, em- emigrate out out of the war place is our doctors mm. because they usually have the money and the the i guess the the foresight to be able to leave huh. um and so and they're the ones that are needed the most uh which is which is what was quite difficult so iraq really had a massive like strain on its healthcare services after the 2003 2003 invasion wow they probably also have like in some institution sometimes institutional support maybe um from who well, I assume like universities or hospitals. Yeah, so the, what sometimes, what, yeah, what universities had to do was um, they graduated doctors quicker. So instead of it being like I think it was a six-year course in Iraq, they reduced it to five years just because oh, okay. they, needed, they needed doctors. Um, oh, I meant sorry, I meant like abroad. They may have some access to. Oh, not as much. No, yeah. as in into the after three people weren't really like as in it was a uh, Iraq was like a viciously violent place and especially like 2004 to 2007 like NGOs were like withdrawing as quickly as they as they could uh, they were based out of maybe Jordan and Amman so you didn't really find foreign healthcare workers like coming into Iraq to support where, which which you might may have found in other wars actually. no I mean in the other way sorry I meant like you could going back to your I, your finding that or the statement that doctors are the quickest to emigrate yeah I was just wondering oh. they could also have foreign foreign universities or hospitals maybe can help facilitate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah. They, they would take them on. Yeah, yeah, because doctors are needed everywhere. Right. Well, that's interesting. Um, and yeah, it's kind of changed. I feel like you may be, would not have been able to get that piece in MS NBC before about you know criticizing Israel. Well, that that was only what two months ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I and I feel before I used to struggle if I ever wanted to pitch anything about um, 
that may have like I guess criticized Israel. And I do think there's been kind of a trend where criticizing Israel has become more acceptable um, as people have become more aware of what's happening. Yeah. Um, like, and I and I would say Bernie Sanders is someone that's pa- paved that way for a lot of people. Like he was the first uh, first presidential, um, the Democratic candidate to um, to to uh, not go to APAC, whereas right. in the past everybody else had gone and things like that. And he actually released a statement saying why he wasn't going, and it, yeah, it was then it criticized Israel. Um, so I'm O'Burning. Yeah, exactly. So there has been a shift, and I think. Um, it's important that these discussions are had, and I think it's good that mainstream media is like looking into it as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's what about what's happening in your on your side of the pond? Um, has Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, so he has been, I guess, shifted out of uh, the Labour Party completely, and he's very much in the um, in the fringes. Uh, unfortunately. Um, and it's interesting, like he's, he, he was always from day one having a massive battle. He was painted as this guy who is not leadership material, is not this, is not that. And his own party members were kind of opposed towards him. So sadly, he would never have would never worked. And I think the same thing happened with Bernie. Like if you look, he was like when he was like massively win, winning um, in the primaries, the Democratic Party got really worried and they like made Elizabeth Warren pull out, they made other people pull out and then commit to Joe Biden. Um, So it's just, it's, it's, I guess we're just seeing mirror stories happening from then and here. Also also good on the Israel-Palestine question. uh, Corbyn. Yeah. Yeah. So when he, um, yeah, he was painted as this anti-Semite, despite him never saying anything against Jews in his history. Um, but it's and it, it's it's kind of a, like a, a thing where if you do say something about Palestine or you support Palestine, it can be almost political suicide. Uh, and AOC realized that before when she like had previously used to make comments about uh, against Israel, and then suddenly backtracked and had to change her story about what Israel is. Um, because it is political suicide, you will get attacked from like both sides, from um, left and right, when you when you attack Israel, and it's difficult for people. Like, if you conflate the story of Israel and anti-Semitism, then you've misinterpreted what what politics really is. Like, it's it's not the same that when like if if I complain about Saudi Arabia, it doesn't mean I, I'm anti-Muslim, kind of thing. Um, yeah. And what do you think, um, uh, you know, there's a, uh, obviously a lot of comparisons between Iraq and Afghanistan, but what do you think of the of what Biden did um, in Afghanistan, which the media just pounced on him for? Um, in the, yeah. If I'm honest, it was inevitable. I don't think I don't. Firstly, I don't think it was a Biden thing. It wasn't like he was the one that did it overnight. This is something that's been happening in stages through from from Obama through Trump to Biden. Um, and it's just that the last soldier left under Biden. Um, but I would, it, it, it was, 
inevitable. Like, what else could have, did we expect was going to happen? The unfortunate thing is that American soldiers there did commit a lot of crimes whilst they were there. People were dying. That, like, like one of the examples I mentioned was Kunduz. So it's not like American soldiers there were really fully just purely protecting the Afghans. Um, but then at the same time, we are hearing about these attacks uh, on mosques, on like the, the sectarian attacks on mosques, which are quite devastating to hear about, which weren't happening under the um, when the Americans were there. So it's quite a difficult question to answer the Afghanistan thing. Um, what's the solution? As in the only real thing that I can talk about is even discussing Biden isn't for me what the reality is. We should have been discussing what should we have even been there in the first place? Like 2000, and the story should really start in 2001. Like whenever I look at what's happening today in Afghanistan, I don't, I'm not blaming Biden or even Trump or Obama. I'm blaming Bush. Like that's the, and I think sometimes that's what the media has missed when they've discussed this. They've blamed Biden for the withdrawal, but not blamed Bush for the entry. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think I was, I was, I mean, pleased that it happened yeah. and surprised. Yeah. Not that it's not problematic, obviously, and things, you know, there isn't chaos. But I, I think that it's kind of like the, the the supposition or the suggestion is that, you know, but for our pulling out, things were great there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, which they weren't. As in any, right. anyone who's read any book on uh, Afghanistan or even an article, you'd know that there were massive atrocities happening every day. Right. Just not of the 13 servicemen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so people didn't follow it. Um, well, um, thank you so much for coming on. I have one more thing I'm going to do. You can stay. I, I feel bad because it's so late where you are, but if you want to, no, I'm going to. Yeah. Okay. So you want to, all right. You want to see, I don't know if you've been following this, but I, I want to share this uh, important update from friend of the show. Although he hasn't been on the on video, he's just been on my podcast a bunch. Um, Adam Johnson, mm -hmm. who does great media criticism work. Have you been on their show? Um, Citations no. needed. It's really good. No. He co-hosted with Nima Shirazi. So, um, you know, people may have seen this, uh, terrible thing from uh brianna keeler terrible terrible woman uh i mean sorry i'm sure she's a lovely woman but uh terrible bernie takes uh she basically uh said so bernie did one of those things where he talks about how badly the media reports on something and he rightly called out the media for not focusing what was in the bill in the reconciliation um infrastructure bills so um just going to read this from uh, the column, which is Adam Johnson's Substack, which is funny because it sounds so right wing to me for some reason, the column, which he's really not, obviously. Um, so he co-wrote a piece with Gabe Levine Drizzen. Um, uh, CNN aired horse race coverage 11 times more than substance. CNN insists it adequately covers the substance of the $3.5 trillion social spending bill. But a survey of three of its major news programs tells a different story. Um, and he shows this clip. It's uh, it's blame the media clock and Senator Bernie Sanders is right on time. And so she very defensively uh, says here, let me play, play some of this. Some, 
Senator Bernie Sanders put out a statement. Can you guys hear it? Blaming the media as the main reason for why Americans don't know what's in the Build Back Better plan. He wrote, quote, at the top of the list is the reality that the mainstream media has done an exceptionally poor job in covering what actually is in the legislation. There have been endless stories about the politics of passing Build Back Better the role of the president, the conflicts in the House and Senate, the opposition of two senators, the size of the bill, and very limited coverage as to what the provisions of the bill are and the crises for working people that they address. Let's take a look at what all he is saying here, because while the media should always be striving to do a better job, it's just not true that the media hasn't covered what is in the bill and doesn't continue to do so. Media outlet after media outlet has covered this. And it's very. okay. look, guys, there were headlines saying that they looked at what's in the reconciliation bill. Easy to find online if you want to know about it. And on television, I mean, just looking at CNN segment after segment about what is in the bill. In his statement, Sanders refers to how popular the policy provisions in the legislation are when Americans. Okay, so. All right. That's uh, she thinks that she's refuting Sanders point by showing that there's some pieces uh, and also CNN stories that go into what's in the bill. Um, but as Adam and uh, Gabe point out. Um, a detailed survey of 12 reconciliation bill segments aired on CNN's major three news programs, the lead with Jake Tapper, the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer and Anderson Cooper 360, reveals that the network covered horse race over substance 11 to 1. Of the two hours and six minutes of total coverage analyzed, only 10 minutes was dedicated to discussing what was actually in the bill, and one hour and 55 minutes of airtime was spent on horse race. The column analyzed four segments from each of the three shows and tallied how many total seconds went to discussing what was in the bill versus how many seconds were dedicated to covering the meta or horse race elements of the lawmaking process, sausage making, speculating about how the bill would play in polls, which senator fired back at which senator, how much the bill would cost, tax, cost quote unquote, taxpayers, quote unquote, and any topic of discussion separate from the content of the bill itself. The details of the survey can be found here as are the links to the segments for one to watch and see for themselves. Um, the column argued two weeks ago that U.S. corporate media was uh, doing a poor job covering the substance of the bill, citing several reports from the previous 24 hours. It wasn't a terribly scientific survey, but meant as a snapshot of one day of coverage at the height of the debate. Obviously, the column doesn't have CNN's resources, but we were able to do a 12-segment survey of CNN's coverage from a high point of the debate, the final four days of September. We chose the final four days of September uh, because it was the peak of the public debate on the reconciliation bill, and it occurred before Senator Sanders and other progressives began working the refs on coverage, complaining about the hollowness of the public debate. Thus, we feel it's more representative of the point Sanders was making. So that's interesting because, uh, you know, people, they they themselves stupidly, um, Kate Keeler, Brianna Keeler, stupidly but not surprisingly, points to some of the coverage that they did after Bernie called them out, which do really doesn't disprove Bernie Sanders' point. If anything, it proves that it's you know useful for him to call them out and take them to task because then they actually respond to stuff. I, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole because people know me. I will spend hours watching anything Bernie-related and breaking it down. So just want to give them a shout-out for this um, piece. 
And um, yeah, again, it's horses over substance. No one ever asks how you're going to pay for wars in the media. It's always how you're going to pay for social programs and social spending. So not sure if that happens in England too, but no, absolutely. Like, there, was this, there, was, there was that interesting meme I saw recently where it was like um, something like, oh, Medicare, how are we going to fund that? And then, oh, but military, yeah, sure. Here's all my money kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's always the same. Like nobody nobody's ever asked where is it, where did the money come from for the Iraq War, but you ask right. them about any social welfare program, and it's just like, oh no, we, is there a magic money tree? Is what Theresa May called it? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's yeah, yeah Theresa May. Yeah. Um. Well, thank you so much. This was great. I re- really yeah, enjoyed thank this. You thank you so me. much. Yeah, of course. Come Likewise. back on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let me know. Um, yeah. yeah, we'll work something. You can out. cover so much stuff. You can be our. We don't have an English correspondent. We yeah, don't we have. Don't, we don't even spoke about Squid Game. Oh yeah, Squid Game. Yeah, we'll have to come back. Well, yeah. Leslie would kill me if if we spoke about Squid Game without you. Should I watch it just so I can take part in the discourse? Uh, you can. I don't think you need. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a good. Show. It's a good show. It's a not good the, show. Not, for me, it's not. It's over, a bit overhyped, but it's a good show to watch. Yeah, I'm watching Succession. Though, if anybody wants a good, film, a good show to watch. Oh yeah, you know I, mean? I gotta I'm watch it. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to get. We interviewed Anna McCann, useful idiot. So maybe I can try to. We should try to get him back on both yeah, shows. Yeah. Invite yeah, me to invite show, me yeah. to that. Invite me to that. I will. Yeah. <laughs> that discussion will. then. <laughs> I'll say you. We one of the most the big one of my favorite doctors turned filmmaker journalists. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, top. You're one of my top five favorite of those who have met, who I've had on my show. Well, I wanted to be in that top top five list. (laughs) Yeah, put that on your website in your Twitter bio. What kind of medicine did you do? So what I would do is um, emergency department, emergency room. Oh, okay. My dad's a psychiatrist. Oh, cool. That's uh, as we need more of them. Basically, yeah, we we need more psychiatrists big time. Where all over. All over in general. Oh, yeah. I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again so much. Everyone check out Ahmed's Twitter, uh, his website. And, um, of course, if you want to become supporters of the show, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Thank, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.